Okay, let's look at Judges, Judges 10, verses 1 through 5, a couple of minor judges. The Bible says, Now after Abimelech died, Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, a man of Issachar, arose to save Israel, and he lived in Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. He judged Israel 23 years, then he died and was buried in Shamir. After him, Jael the Gileadite rose and judged Israel 22 years. He had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities in the land of Gilead uh, that are called Havath, Havath Jair to this day. And Jair died uh, and was buried in Camon. Now, there are six men that we would characterize as minor judges throughout the book. The only one that we have seen previously is Shamgar back in 331. And here we find Tola in verses 1 and 2, and Jair in verses 3 through 5. So, uh, these are the minor judges that, that we've encountered thus far. We'll find three more when we get to Judges 12. The Bible tells us after Abimelech died, Tola, the son um, of Issachar, uh, excuse me, a man of Issachar, and by the way, there's one of our famous people from Issachar. We were looking for somebody <laughs> famous from, from the various tribes last time when we were studying the book of Joshua. Here's somebody from Issachar, but it says, He arose. He arose. Now, this is the Hebrew word, but the important thing, when the Bible says God raised up judges, it is the same word. It is the same word as used here. God raised up judges in 2.16 and 2.18. Uh, that language was used in 3.9 and 3.15. And it's the language it's used here of this minor judge. So a lot of the vocabulary which is used in connection with these judges is used of the previous judges. But... Who does it say, in the text earlier, who was, does it say specifically raised up these judges in these instances? The Lord. the Lord raised them up. Here it doesn't have a specific mention of the Lord. It simply says, He arose, and it says, He saved Israel. Now the word saved is a form of joke. Uh, Joshua's name, um, form of Isaiah's name, form of Hosea's name. All it's in, it's in all of those. But this is the fifteenth time in Judges this particular word has been used. So what I'm trying to stress again, over and over, the book of Judges has used this same kind of vocabulary and is always attributed. These to the Lord raised up. The Lord used someone to save the people, but but ultimately God is behind it all. And so uh, some of this same vocabulary is repeated here. Now, one of the things that was interesting to me, 
And I don't want to spend too much time on Tola. We don't know much of what he did, except he says he judged Israel 23 years. But think about this. You've got Tola. You've got uh, his father is Pua. And uh, they are from the tribe of Issachar. In Genesis 46, verse 13, when the Bible is talking about the tribe of Issachar going into Egypt, it has a man by the name of Tola, and it, I think in most translations has something, uh, it's spelled something like this, but it's basically the same word in Hebrew that's in Genesis uh, 46 and verse uh, 13. And also in Numbers 26, verse 23, again with Issachar, you find these same people linked in 1 Chronicles 7, verses 1 and 2. So it was what I'm saying. Apparently there are famous people in this family line or in this tribe who had this name. And this name was passed on from generation to generation. Uh, Jair has 30 sons uh, that ride on 30 donkeys. Uh, 30 donkeys. And, and do all your translations in verse 4 have that they rode on 30 donkeys and they had 30 cities? Do all of your trans okay, all of your translations have that 30 donkeys rode on 30 cities. And, uh, excuse me, I apologize. I, I, I did not, that, I would not have called that if you had not laughed at it. I didn't even realize what I said. So, but he has his 30 sons, ride on 30 donkeys, and have control of 30 cities. And, um, that, what does that mean? Does that mean there are more than just judges to me? Yeah, it, it almost sounds like he's taking the lifestyle of a king. Mm-hmm. You know, if you have thirty sons, do you have more than one wife? For his wife's sake, I hope so. <laughs> you know, I, I I would imagine he has several wives and thirty sons. And, and, you know, kings were not to multiply wives for themselves. They're not to multiply. Um, horses for themselves. Now, these are donkeys instead of horses. But does this indicate that? Does it indicate that even these characters who we don't know that much about are demanding too much of the people? I'm not particularly sure there. What, what thoughts do you all have? What other thoughts? Um, what questions did I not touch upon? Where is Gilead? Gilead would just be a reference to this area across the Jordan. Now, sometimes it seems specifically to refer to a part of the land in the middle of it. You notice like here's Jabesh Gilead located right here. Sometimes it refers to a portion of it but sometimes it refers to the whole area east of the Jordan. It's a good question because uh, we do need to deal with that there, and we're going to deal with that in the case of Jephthah as well. 
What else? What other thoughts do you have, David? Uh, are we to assume that Dodo is not one of the famous family names? That's not a, that's not a name that keeps recurring. Okay. That's not a name that keeps recurring in these passages. So uh, somebody branched out and named their child that <laughs> differently. But... Um, okay. I don't know when the Bible says hill country of Ephraim if that is a reference to the tribe or if it is an area if it is a reference to this area uh, through the middle of the country. I, I really wrestle with that sometimes. Because sometimes things happen in the hill country of Ephraim that are hard to fit in the tribe of Ephraim. And I think that 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 phrase must have had some reference beyond the tribe of Ephraim. And and we could think of some geographical things that do that. Off the top of my head, none of them are coming to me. But I'm sure we could think of something that geographically that does that. Well, for example, yes, I, I just did think of one. Um, like the Mississippi River extends way beyond the state of Mississippi, and we could say that for other state rivers, but since this is the biggest river in this part of the country, then extends way beyond that. And so that may be the same kind of thing that we're talking about here. What else? Anything? This next passage, to me, in a lot of ways, is one of the most instructive passages in the book of Judges. This section from 10 uh, verses 6 through 16. Um, And in some ways it parallels with the beginning when we were in chapter 2, verse uh, 6 through 3, verse 6. And of that brief section where the prophet spoke in 6 verses 7 through 10. And this is a big picture overview of a lot of the events of the book of, of Judges. A lot of this time of the Judges. So let's listen to this text. The sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Asherah, the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of Ammon, the gods of the Philistines. Thus they forsook the Lord and did not serve Him. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel and He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the sons of Ammon. They afflicted them and crushed the sons of Israel that year. For 18 years they afflicted all the sons of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in Gilead in the land of the Amorites. The sons of Ammon crossed over the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin, and the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was greatly distressed. And the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you, for indeed we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. The Lord said to the sons of Israel, Did I not deliver you? And by the way, you notice that's in italics in the New American Standard. From the the Edomites, excuse me, from the Egyptians, the Amorites, the sons of Ammon, and the Philistines. 
And when the Sidonians and the Amalekites and the Manoites oppressed you and cried out to me, I delivered you from their hands. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore I will deliver you no more. Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen and let them deliver you in the time of their distress. The sons of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put the foreign gods from among them. They put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord and he could bear the misery of Israel no longer. Verse 6 is the longest statement of apostasy in the book of Judges. If you want to state it like that, the longest statement we could just apply our cycle. The longest statement of sin or doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. Often the text just says they did evil in the sight of the Lord. Sometimes, at first, it would say they did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. But here, there is a sevenfold description of the gods they served. Remember when God gave them the land. He mentioned there's seven nations mightier and stronger than you in Deuteronomy 7. Now, here when they're in the land, He mentions that there are seven nations and their gods that the people served, that the people turned to. He goes into great detail describing the gods that they served. Notice how frequently the text says the people forsook the Lord. You see that in verse 6, that they forsook the Lord. You see that in verse 10, that they had forsaken the Lord. You see it in verse 13, that they have forsaken the Lord. They forsook the Lord. The text tells us in verse 6, they forsook Him, they did not serve the Lord. They did not serve the Lord. But, positively, they did serve Baal. In chapter 10, verse 6, among the others that they served. Also in verse uh, 10, we have forsaken our God, the people acknowledge, and served the Baals. And then in verse 13, it is said that they had served other gods. So they forsook the Lord and did not serve the Lord. But they served the Baals. And they are... That the text is very explicit with their sin, and later they themselves are as well. They themselves are. And the Bible says, the anger of the Lord burned against him. Against them. It's the first time the anger of the Lord has been mentioned since 3, verse 8. The anger of the Lord burned against them, and God gives them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites. Now, the question that was asked earlier about where Gilead was, 
uh, Gilead over here, the Ammonites seem to have been the ones who oppressed Israel on the east side of the Jordan. Now we'll find in just a moment that some of their oppressions filtered over into Judah and Benjamin as well, for example. But, but primarily the Ammonites are enemies on this side. The Philistines are enemies here on the west near the Mediterranean Sea. So the Philistines are a problem for these people on this side of the river while the Ammonites are a problem for those people on the other side of the river. And uh, this is the first time that we see kind of two nations at one time being raised up to oppress uh, Israel. It's like sometimes in, in conflict, in, in a physical battle, there's an effort to open up uh, two, uh, two battles to make the enemy defend two locations. And in a sense, God is using this to try to humble his people. Now, one thing that really struck out stuck out to me Verse 8 says, They afflicted and they crushed. They afflicted and they crushed the sons of Israel. Do you know that word crushed is used one other time in the book of Judges? Could you guess where it would be? Crush the skull. When the woman dropped the millstone. He crushed his skull in 953 Abimelech's skull. The reason I use that is that simply shows us how intense the oppression is that they're experiencing. They are described as being crushed with a word that describes the crushing of Abimelech's skull. They afflicted and crushed the sons of Israel for 18 years and they afflict all the sons of Israel living on the west, on the, on the east of the Jordan or in Jordan uh, on, on beyond the Jordan in Gilead um, yes I've got a footnote for the word afflicted there that says literally shattered okay which that to me carries more force which would go along with crush yes that word is only used one other time and uh, and that is how it's translated in Exodus 15 verse 6 this is the song celebrating deliverance at the Red Sea your right hand O Lord is majestic in power your right hand O Lord shatters the enemy. Same word here. So they shattered, they afflicted, they crushed the sons of Israel for 18 years. The Bible is highlighting the severity of the oppression that is experienced. Now, we see the Ammonites also cross the Jordan and it affects some of Judah, some of Benjamin, some of Ephraim in verse 9. But this is a an affliction that's focused first and foremost on the people east of the Jordan. Well, what thoughts do you have there? Okay, in verse 10, 
the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord and said, We've sinned against you. We have forsaken our God and served the Baals. Uh, this is the clearest confession of sin that, that we see in the book. Uh, just like this is the clearest statement of the people's wrongdoing, this is the strongest confession of sin that they make in the book. Strongest confession. So they acknowledge their sin and said, they describe God, notice too, we have forsaken our God and serve the Baals. They are acknowledging that He is their God, that He's done everything for them, and we've sinned against you, and we've forsaken you, and we've served you. And God mentions how He delivered the people. In verses 11 and 12, how many nations does God deliver His people from? Seven. Seven. Okay. Seven. So just like there are seven nations uh, that they were going to defeat and seven gods that they serve, in here you find seven times that they were delivered by God. Now, I'm not saying that that is the exact number and they're limited to that, but my point is maybe that number seven indicates completeness each time. Maybe um, it's... It, but their sevenfold idolatry was matched by a sevenfold difficulty from these nations. But when the people say, We've forsaken you, we've served other gods, God says, Listen, I have delivered you time after time after time, and you've cried out to me, I've delivered you from all your difficulties, you've forsaken me again. Go cry out to the gods that you've chosen. <clears throat> Did you all do you all have any good cross references? Or does that call to mind any other scriptures where you see God saying something similar to Israel? Well what I thought of, which isn't that, but uh, Elijah on Mount Carmel and okay. you know the prophets of Baal and he kind of taunts them with you know cry out to your God you know yell maybe he's asleep yeah uh, and so that's what I was reminded of when yes I you're right that's a very good point it's not the exact same kind of sentence right. structure but it's the idea same idea that we're dealing with He's just taunting the powerlessness of their gods. But, but listen to this. This is Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32, verse 37 through 39. This is kind of a, a psalm that Israel is to be taught. Uh, it's not a happy song because their history is not going to be a happy one. But um, it is a song to warn them of the dangers of forgetting God. In Deuteronomy 32, verse 37, He will say, Where are their gods? The gods in which they sought refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drink 
drank the wine of their drink offering. Let them arise and help you. Let them be your hiding place. See now that I, I am He. And there's no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded and it is I who heal. And there is no one who can deliver from my hand. So as he's telling the story of Israel in advance, he tells them that one day they will be asked, where are these gods? Where are these rocks in which you sought refuge? These gods that took the sacrifices of your animals, where are they? Call out to them. Let them protect you in times of trouble. Look at Jeremiah 2. Jeremiah 2 Jeremiah's preaching around 600 B.C. And look at verses 27 and 28. The people say to a tree, who say to a tree, you are my father, to a stone, you gave me birth, for they have turned their back to me and not their face. But in their time of trouble, they will say, arise, Save us. But where are your gods which you made for yourself? Let them arise if they can save you in the time of trouble. For according to the number of your cities are your gods, O Israel. So the passage David mentioned in 1 Kings 18, same kind of idea. Jeremiah 2, 27, 28. Deuteronomy 32, verses 37 38, almost the same kind of wording. Let your other gods save you. Now, why would God answer that way? Why would God answer that way? Why would He say, when these people cry out to Him, go to your other gods, let them deliver you? I think he's emphasizing the foolishness of what they've been doing. The foolishness. Powerlessness. Yeah. You you chose them. Let them do what you want me to do. Okay. That's right. And and they know the answer. (laughs) That's the thing. I know it. Yeah. They call out to Jehovah because they know he can do what they want. Yes. Paul also, I know you're probably saying the same kind of thing, anything to add on it. So just a ditto, just a like. So, uh, but yeah, it, it just emphasized the powerlessness of their gods. If the sin of the Old Testament is idolatry, God is truly trying to get them to see in their crisis that they have nowhere else to turn but Him. And they shouldn't turn anywhere else in good times and bad. No analogy we can make is perfectly consistent here and perfectly parallels with God's situation with um, Israel. But I know a man who, um, who said his son had gotten in several minor things got in trouble. He would be thrown in jail for a night or a day and he would come bail him out. 
And finally, by the third or fourth time, he wondered, am I doing any good? And he called him to bail him out. And he said, no. Um, I want to let you see what it's like. Would that be hard for him to do? Sure, it'd be hard for any parent to do. But he said that did more to bring him around than the other times where I bailed him out. And I think God is doing the same thing. God's wanting to change the whole trajectory of their lives. And so God is telling them, you understand, like David said, they understood the helplessness of their God. They understand how nothing they were. They understood they could not deliver them or else they wouldn't be running to the Lord every time there's a crisis. And um, God is trying to underline this and to put exclamations behind it to emphasize He is their only hope. Now, I have no doubt that if any of us were to go to the doctor tomorrow and to find out we have a couple of months to live, that we would focus our attention directly on God and call out to Him. Why don't we live that way? I'm not saying that as an accusation, but I'm saying that as an argument for why don't we live that way in good time? Why don't we use that as an argument to build our whole lives on God? I know we're still going to have to go about some of the daily affairs of life, but I'm saying He should be the one in whom we put all our trust and hope because we know only He can deliver in times of crisis. What else? Yes. You will know this illustration better than I can say it, but at the beginning of the NFL football season, there was a player on the field that had a heart attack. Everybody, the announcer, the players, people in the stands were praying to God. Yeah. And uh, uh, you just wonder if you don't have the same kind of situation there. Uh, they knew their gods yeah. could never help this situation. Yeah, a situation like that all of a sudden can make a football stadium where there's a lot of all kinds of foolishness going on. It can make it a cathedral pretty fast because we understand the, the helplessness of everything else in such moments. And uh, that's, that's, that is a good point. That's a good point. And um, what else? What else do you all have? What what other ideas? Paul, did you? Yeah, at the end of verse sixteen, mm-hmm. the last phrase is that saying, "God is becoming weary of Israel's misery." That He's seeing okay. their pain and feeling their pain, or what is the idea? Okay. Um, sorry that you ask. <laughs> so that's a difficult passage but let's let's look at 15 and 16 that Paul asked about we're going to get to that question right away Paul but first of all the sons of Israel said verse 15 we've sinned 
Do to us whatever seems good to you. Now, you know what that phrase actually is in Hebrew? It says, do to us whatever is good in your eyes. Now, why would I mention that? What's the end of the book we're going to talk about? The people did what was good in their eyes. Here they're saying to God, do what's good in your eyes. And But they put away the foreign gods from among them. They served the Lord. Now we've seen this word serve. It says they did not serve the Lord in verse 6. They served the Baals in several passages. But here the people say they served the Lord. They served the Lord. Excuse me, 16. They served the Lord. And the Bible says that he could bear the misery of Israel no longer. Now, the question Paul asked, he could bear their misery no longer. First of all, let me ask you all how that's translated in your versions. I have an American standard, but I do have a footnote on this. Okay. It says literal, literally, his soul was short with the misery. I don't know if that helps. But it's a little different. Now, what does that mean? His soul was short yeah. with their misery. Um, when says that he became impatient over them. He became impatient with them. Became impatient with them. This word is used one other time in the book of Judges. Look at Judges 16. Judges 16, verse 16. It came about when she pressed him daily with her words and urged him that his soul was annoyed to death. The word annoyed is from the same Hebrew word. So while it talks about Samson being annoyed with Delilah's constant urging of him to tell the secret of his strength in 1616, it's used here. Now, this is a difficulty. Um, that phrase is used a couple of other times and it seems to refer to kind of like an impatient spirit like you mentioned. I think it's Numbers 21 verse 4. Numbers 21 4 talks about Israel becoming impatient. It's used of them. But it seems to be in context and so most translations have it this way because it does seem like the Lord is being gracious to the people at the end of their request. But the, the translation of that word doesn't really bear that out too often. And uh, if this is one of the most, if it is a statement of mercy, which we see God's mercy in every line of the book of Judges, but, but this would be one of the most direct statements of it. But the translation is, is it, it's difficult to say exactly expressly what it's saying. Is God annoyed at their, you know, trouble or, or hardship because they haven't really repented? But it does seem like to me, just contextually, it's in the context of God showing mercy to them. So that's the difficulty. It, what Paul, what thoughts did you have? Um, no, I just noticed that in looking at different translations. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think it's definitely positive. It's what? I think it's definitely positive. It seems positive feels, contextually. Yeah, I think he's feeling. It's, it's a picture of him feeling personally 
the misery of Israel. And it could be that he's it could be that he's impatient with their pain, with their suffering, yeah. and anxious to answer their cries. That could be the the impatience that he's dealing with there. But 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 this is one of the this would be one of the hopeful points of the book of Judges, which isn't always that hopeful. Uh, but this but this is a hopeful point. Um, let's say a little bit about Jephthah because I want to make a, a tie in here. Anything else that you have? That was a good question, Paul. I've just been dreading it though, but it's so um, the, uh, ESV, maybe we survived it. The ESV says that he became impatient over the misery of Israel. He became so impatient. ESV does okay. That. He became impatient with their misery. Okay. Okay. This is a point I wanted to make. Let's look at eleven or ten seventeen to eleven eleven. The sons of Ammon were summoned, and they camped in Gilead. And the sons of Israel gathered together and camped in Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is this man who will, who will begin to fight against the sons of Ammon? He shall be head of the inhabitants of Gilead. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a valiant warrior, and he was the son of a harlot. And Gilead was the father of Jephthah. And Gilead's father bore him sons, and when his wife's sons, Gilead's wife, okay, Gilead's wife bore him sons. I'm trying to read this fast, and I apologize for making a mistake. When his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, "You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman." So Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob or Tob, and worthless fellows gathered themselves about Jephthah, and they went out with him. It came about after a while the sons of Ammon fought against Israel. And it happened when the sons of Ammon fought against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our chief, that we may fight against the sons of Ammon. Then Jephthah said to the elders of Israel, Did you not hate me and drive me out from my father's house? So why have you come to me now when you're in trouble? The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, For this reason we have now returned to you, that you may go with us and fight the sons of Ammon and become head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Then Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you take me back to fight against the sons of Ammon, and the Lord gives them up to me, will I become your head? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord is witness between us. Surely we will do as you have said. Then Jephthah went to the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and chief over them. And Jephthah spoke all these words before the Lord at Mizpah. Now, I will say this. Jephthah does mention the Lord giving him victory in battle. Verse 9. They mention the Lord as a witness. And then in verse 11, they make him chief over them before the Lord. So the Lord is mentioned in verses 9 to 11. Usually though, when a judge is raised up, the language is the Lord raised up as judge. Did you notice that language is missing? From this account of Jephthah. What you find out throughout the book of Judges 
is this cycle of sin, punishment, crying to the Lord, and the Lord raising up a deliverer, it slowly begins to disintegrate. That, 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 that cycle. And here, while the Lord used Jephthah, certainly in this case, it's not stated that way. The Lord raised up Jephthah. Um, now, when it tells us his mother was a prostitute, does that call to mind anybody we've seen before in Judges? Abimelech's mother was a concubine. And, you know, he... And, and, and so, but 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 it makes it's a comparison. I mean, Jephthah's mother is even of a lower state than Abimelech's mother, but but there is a comparison between them. Also, look in eleven three. After Jephthah is cast out of his father's house, and they're saying you're not going to have an inheritance with us, who does he associate with? Some worthless fellows gathered around him. Those two words, worthless fellows, are used also in 9 verse 4 to describe Abimelech's company. He had some worthless and reckless fellows. So so there are comparisons between Jephthah and Abimelech right off the bat. That doesn't sound good. So that's not a good reminder. Um, But tell me something. I'm going to raise the board and use the board for something else. What are some of your thoughts here or questions right here on the text? It seems like the people are treating Jephthah the same way they treated God. Okay. They are treating Jephthah the same way they're treating God. And I'm erasing this board to give you a chart about that. Um, A chart that is not original with me, of course. Uh, But let's, first of all, verse 6 mentioned, it's it's really verse 7 to 9 that mentioned... Chapter 11. But first first we'll see how they treated God. The Ammonite are the enemy. And I sure didn't spell that right. I don't think there's two ends. I don't think there's two ends. Okay, is there just one? Is there two ends? Two ends. Two ends, okay. It's in the active tense. Okay. Two ends. Okay. You know, you didn't do that well in spelling in school anyway. But, but, um, but, uh, so, you've got the Ammonites, oppression, raising up, and then you have the same thing over here from 10.17 to 11.4. The Ammonites are the enemy in both of these cases. Now, also, after Israel suffers, Israel turns to God. And the same thing here in 11 verse um, 5 and 6 the elders of the city, the elders of Gilead, turn to Jephthah. So, just like they turn to God in trouble, they turn to Jephthah in trouble. And God asks, in verses 11 through 14, why are you running to me in trouble? 
Why do you run to me in times of trouble? Jephthah asked the same thing in 11 verse 7. Why are you running to me in times of trouble? You kicked me out of my father's house. Why do you come running to me now? Well, in both cases... Israel begs. They shift, they shift their language. They, they beg for their help. Nevertheless, we're turning to you now, they say to Jephthah. Now, this is the bottom line. What is it motivates Jephthah? Paul? Power. Power, yeah. Y'all promising I'm going to be your leader? Promising I'm going to be your head? Jephthah is motivated. He is motivated by wanting to be the leader. What is motivating God? Now, if we intra- if we tr- if we translate ten sixteen in the traditional way, God is motivated by mercy. He's not motivated simply by power over his people. He has that anyway. He's motivated by his concern for his people. So I really think this is a striking, it is a comparison at several points, but yet the comparison breaks down at points too. And the points where it's a contrast are in a sense the reason in many ways for all the comparison. To emphasize God's mercy versus man's simply desire for power. What what ideas there? What thoughts do you have? I, I got that chart, by the way, from it's it's a little bit different than how he worded a couple of things, but it's the basic ideas from Daniel Block in his commentary in the New American series. And um, it, it can provide some very useful information to the book of Judges. So, but but right at the start, it's really striking to me. And, and uh, we'll just say a little bit about this Sunday before we go on to 11 verse 12. And I know Paul did questions all the way to verse 28. I appreciate that. So, so we're already set for that for, for Sunday. But we'll try to finish the chapter. And we'll try... I would ask this, in your arguments, whatever they be, about Jephthah's daughter, let's all try to make them concise, because we don't, we don't have the time to take up a whole class just on <laughs> Jephthah's daughter. But, but I would say um, that it is striking to me that the call of Jephthah to be a judge, till we get to verse 9, seems like purely a human process. And it may show us, even after all these statements of 10 verses 6 through 16, they're not seeing their dependence on God enough. And uh, so that may be a statement to that effect. But anyway, anything else that you want to add?
Well, thank you, and um, God bless, and Lord willing, we'll see you on Sunday.